Welcome to NC15 from CFA Society, North Carolina. I'm your host, Pedro Bernal. This podcast brings you an unbiased lens on finance and investing through short conversations. Our guests are the most interesting and accomplished people. In a concise format, we discuss the top issues or salient questions impacting our guests. In this episode, which was recorded on February 24, 2022, I'm delighted to welcome Tracy McMillian, who is Head of Global Asset Allocation Strategy for Wells Fargo Investment Institute, a subsidiary of Wells Fargo Bank. Wells Fargo Investment Institute is focused on delivering the highest quality investment expertise and advice to help investors manage risk and succeed financially. Wells Fargo Investment Institute is comprised of Wells Fargo Private Bank and Wells Fargo Advisors. In her current role, McMillian leads a team that develops capital market assumptions in asset allocation recommendations. She also writes market commentary and analysis. McMillian is frequently quoted in the national media, including the Wall Street Journal, Reuters, Bloomberg TD, and CNBC. McMillian earned a Bachelor of Arts in Economics and a Master's of Business Administration from the College of William & Mary in Virginia. She is a CFA charterholder and a member of the CFA Society in North Carolina. McMillian resides in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. We talked with Tracy about global asset allocation and historical lessons, how portfolios are impacted by inflation, geopolitical risks, and exogenous shocks, and her latest findings on women and investing. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Pedro. I'm glad to be here. I am typically not starstruck, but I have been an avid follower of yours for a long time. You always have astute market insights and eloquently state your investment position. That's very nice of you, Pedro. We are delighted to have you join our NC15 podcast. Let's get started. As investors, we often need to incorporate academic and practitioners' viewpoints into our framework. There was a recent CFA Institute research publication called Popularity, a Bridge Between Classical and Behavioral Finance, in which Roger Ibbotson and others discussed the 100% rule. Their position is that the majority of the return can be explained by the investment policy rather than the asset allocation. Can you please describe your asset allocation approach and process and whether you include an academic perspective into your framework? Our approach does recognize a lot of that academic work on asset allocation. And you're right. Most of us recall the famous Brinson Bebauer asset allocation study and then some of the subsequent work that Ibbotson and others have done. Um, we recall that from our CFA days. And their work really explored the variability of returns that are attributable to strategic asset allocation, tactical asset allocation, um, how much is attributable to security selection. And then they had a category of other factors that they attributed the the, um, variability of returns to. And in those studies, asset allocation was determined to account for a large portion of the variability of returns. And whether, you know, that's 40% or 50% or 90 or 100% really depends on the study and the perspective of the person conducting the study. But, you know, the underlying message has been found to be largely true. And it, it really stands to reason because, you know, the more low volatility assets in, you have in your allocation, the lower and the less variable the returns 
are likely to be, and then vice versa. Ibbotson has made the case, as you stated, that 100% of the return comes from asset allocation. Um, And that's really because he's looking at net gains of market participants. And the net gains of market participants um, are zero. So, you know, his argument is that policy accounts for all of the return, but he's also looking broadly across all investors. You know, there are a number of opinions out there about how to best manage the allocations professionally in investment portfolio. And there are different ways that um, professionals use asset allocation. Now, on the one hand, there are fund managers who use multi-asset classes to gain tactical alpha over some benchmark. And then there are practitioners like us who use strategic or long-term asset allocation as a framework or a tool for managing risk. And also to help us estimate future returns for individual investor portfolios for things like retirement planning or legacy planning. And the utility of each of these uh, different ways of using asset allocation is very different. And so the way asset allocation is used can be quite different. A fund manager is looking to best a benchmark in a tax agnostic agnostic world, um, they're going to run money really differently than a portfolio manager who's allocating to a highly taxed, trade-sensitive investment portfolio. In my role, we serve individual clients. And so we set a framework for portfolio allocations that meet a variety of personal money goals and personal risk preferences. So setting an asset allocation strategy can really help individuals manage their volatility risk. And it also helps in the task of estimating asset accumulation over time. Generally speaking, you know, the more risk an investor is willing to take, the greater his or her expected future payout should be. And again, this is common sense. Uh, you know, to take an example, why would someone take on a large amount of risk for a small amount of return? You know, would a person invest in an asset that might generate one or two percent if the volatility is going to be 50 percent? A year? You know, no, of course not. So allocating to different asset classes requires estimating those reasonable future returns for different asset classes and their future risks. So that's part of the work that our team does. That's the, the foundational work. We develop risk and return forecasts that generally form an upwardly sloping linear relationship, or most of us who've taken the CFA know that is the capital market line. Our process for estimating those future capital market statistics is very rooted in historical data. So we look at the historical returns, the historical risk, the historical yields for different asset classes, and we uh, look at the averages over a long period of time since inception for the benchmark. And then we add a qualitative overlay that allows for an adjustment to those historical numbers. And our adjustments reflect our views over the next full market cycle. So, you know, a full bear and a full bull cycle. 
And then we use those estimates to determine what we call a, a modified optimal allocation for each you know, level of risk that we've specified. We develop strategic asset allocation guidance for different investor preferences. And that's why we call it a modified optimal allocation, because we set different constraints to develop a global diversified portfolio that reflects individual preferences, whether that's for risk or for um, tax efficiency, or just to make sure we have adequate uh, regional and capitation and credit risk spread across the portfolio and how to allocate assets. For us, it's really coming down to an investor's individual circumstances. No two investors that I've met anyway <laughs> have had the exact same financial situation. So it often helps investors to bucket their money by goal and then assign different timeframes to those goals. And for shorter timeframes, larger allocations to low-risk assets are usually the best option because they fluctuate less. And there's more certainty that you're going to have the amount of assets that you need for that short-term goal. Intermediate goals can be better served with a mix of low-risk and high-risk assets. So you know you get some stability and also some growth potential. And then long-term goals, these are really the ones where the investor truly believes that they can ride out market disruption we think those can be populated with uh, more high-risk assets. And a lot of investors we've found try to wrap all these goals together into one investment account that's balanced or you know, maybe the traditional 60-40 allocation. And we, we develop over 50 different distinct allocation that combine um, both those high-risk assets and low-risk assets in varying degrees, including a set of newer allocations that are tax-efficient. And we think our tax-efficient allocations are unique because we use capital market assumptions for asset classes that we've already adjusted for taxes. So in other words, we, we look at that forecast for an asset class, and then we adjust for the amount of taxes that may be attributable to that asset class for someone in a, a very high tax bracket. And then once we establish that asset allocation, an investor can periodically rebalance that target allocation. So that's essentially creating an automatic kind of buy low, sell high strategy, which is really key to accumulating assets over a long period of time. And I'll just add in conclusion that in addition to strategic allocation, we also employ a, a dynamic tactical overlay where we insert our nearer term expectations for asset classes. And those are expressed as overweights or underweights relative to our long-term strategic allocation. And that process really involves a very extensive analysis of asset classes that we include in our strategic allocations and some that we don't include in our typical strategic allocations. And then we determine the best tactical positioning over you know, our forecast for six to 18 months. And right now, that tactical positioning has us recommending U.S. assets over international assets and moving up in quality within equities from small caps, you know, into things like larger caps, mid caps, where the quality of earnings is, is better. And that's pretty much where our teams work stock. 
We provide the strategic and the tactical advice to other teams. And then those other teams, these managers fill out the uh, various asset class allocations. In terms of the exogenous impacts that you you might see relative to the tactical. How do you absorb COVID, such as what we're seeing from the Ukraine situation going on today? You reassess on an annual basis, or how does that work in in your environment? What we do change more frequently are those tactical forecasts, and we can change that at any point. Like you said, it's it's a very challenging day that we are recording podcasts because Russia has just invaded Ukraine, and our tactical positioning within a portfolio has to adjust to varying economic circumstances or varying geopolitical political circumstances. In anticipation of something like this happening, we have amplified our allocations to the U.S. and to quality. And also we have uh, an overweight allocation commodity because we think that all of those asset classes are the ones that are more likely to perform well in a environment where geopolitical politics is somewhat in a strained position, and also in an environment where inflation is picking up. And, you know, I would say that the geopolitical situation is pounding the inflation. So uh, all of that we have to take into account when we're looking to maneuver tactically within those strategic patients we set up. Your comments really great lead into my next question. I love history, so I'm so glad that you mentioned history and and the many teachings that history has. So given the environment for investments around the world in 2022, is the right strategy as simple as a risk parity portfolio, hypothetical risk parity portfolios in the 1970s, depending on which study you look at, generated uh, nominal returns above 10% and real returns above 3%, which when you compare that to a 60-40 portfolio, the average real return was negative 1% for the decade. Is the risk parity portfolio the right mix to have from an allocation standpoint? Or is there something that's better that we should be thinking about as investors? A really, really good question there, Pedro. And it's an interesting study, that is sure. And as we were just talking, the environment for investing around the world has certainly gotten a lot more complicated in 2022. Investors are facing challenges from inflation, from geopolitics. Those are probably the most pertinent headwinds that we're facing today. But there are a lot of other other issues that investors are also facing, you know, slowing growth around the world, issue of, uh, you know, inflation and its its causes, supply constraints, labor constraints. We think that inflation is probably going to persist at levels higher than the Fed's 2% target, at least through the end of next year. And it could possibly remain elevated for several years thereafter. And uh, given what we were just saying about the geopolitical situation, compounding the problem of inflation, that is is not um, out of the realm of possibilities. But you know, when you're thinking about allocating, inflation is especially hard on fixed income because it incites central banks to raise interest rates, and of course, rising interest rates 
lead to price pressures on bonds. We certainly saw that last year, and we've seen it so far this year as well. But this seems to be more of a transitional phenomenon, because once rates reset higher, bonds can stabilize and then start to provide higher term and credit premiums. Um, Our research has shown that this happens between three to four percent inflation. And then it starts to fall off. Those uh, term premiums and credit premiums tend to start falling off as inflation rises beyond that 4% level. And equities, too, can reach a point where inflation starts to have a negative impact on returns. Generally speaking, the average equity risk premiums deteriorate and are often negative when inflation is averaging on a 12-month period between 3 to 5%. But the interesting thing we found was that average dividend yields tend to somewhat offset those declines because they usually rise with higher inflation. Our long-term inflation outlook is closer to the Fed's target 2%. So yes, we're acknowledging you know the next few years could be above that 2%, but our longer term is still around the Fed's target. And we think that under that type of inflation regime, a portfolio that's globally and broadly diversified should perform well. We've looked at the asset classes that perform best when inflation is above average. And so we're using that tactically in our portfolios. And we found that those that are top performers are, not surprisingly, commodities, but maybe somewhat surprisingly mid-caps. We are overweighting commodities and mid-caps tactically. And then we found that U.S. and developed market investment-grade fixed income were the laggards during periods of higher than average inflation. So we have unfavorable ratings, especially on U.S. long-term investment grade fixed income, and we are avoiding allocating to developed market investment grade fixed income altogether right now. Hypothetical historical performance. You know, you were referencing a, a study, risk parity, that used hypothetical risk historical performance. And using that uh, to analyze a strategy always makes me a little bit nervous because, you know, as investment professionals, we can't help but employ our learnings from history and past cycles into the construction of solutions for the current cycle. And don't get me wrong, like like we were just discussing, you know, you love history. I love history. I'm a big believer in studying history for trend guidance, but especially in the context of individual asset classes. I, I think history tells us a lot about how assets tend to behave under different economic conditions. And When we look at the asset classes that performed well in the 1970s, we can see those asset classes that tended to work well in in an extreme inflationary environment. And, you know, as the study you referenced pointed out, commodities and tips were two of the best performing asset classes in the 70s. And some of our listeners are probably going to think tips were around in the 1970s. And that is true. That study actually went back and, and reconstructed what they um, believe performance would have been for tips uh, during that period of time. And, you know, I'm I'm going to kind of put this in the context of our our current views. We don't think that inflation will be as persistent, nor do we think it will be as high as it was in the 1970s. But we do think we've entered a new commodities bull super cycle. 
And that's a multi-year cycle where commodities are probably going to be in a bull market. And we think that's going to put pressure on prices and benefit commodities owners. So that is why we've added commodities back tactically and strategically in a lot of our allocations over the past couple of years. We think tips are a little bit trickier. Uh, Yes, they're designed to protect against inflation, but in taxable accounts where taxability um, can be a problem for some investors, the way that tips are taxed can create more negatives to that type of portfolio than positives. And also what might be missing in the analysis of tips is that tips do tend to rise and fall with other bond prices. So we think investors should take advantage of the benefits of using uncorrelated, um, a mix of different uncorrelated assets in order to mitigate risk in this type of time where challenges are really increasing, the pace of change is intensifying. And we would say that that broad diversification across uncorrelated assets would include global stocks, different capitalizations within stocks, global bonds. Um, Again, you know, I, I did mention we're not allocating to developed market bonds, but we are allocating to emerging markets bonds and variations within the U.S. bond market. So different time periods, different maturities, different durations, um, and different credit. And of course, having an allocation to real assets like commodities, private capital is another way uh, to get some uncorrelated longer-term returns. And if appropriate, non-directional hedge fund strategies are another good asset class that has a lot of diversifying properties. That's great perspective, Tracy. So I'm going to shift it completely around and change to a topic which we ask our listeners to tell us what they would want to ask you. Given that you have done extensive work understanding women and their investment thinking, our listeners would like to know your latest findings. What women tell us and a lot of the studies that we've done, and we have studied this pretty extensively, is that when it comes to investing, women are very time constrained. They don't always know where to start. Um, They can be unfamiliar with investment jargon, and they don't want to have to take the time to figure out where to start, to learn investment jargon. And consequently, they feel more unsure about their investment decisions. So they might delegate that to someone else just because they have so many demands on their time. But we have looked at the way women do invest when when they are the primary person on an account. So whether it's a single female on the account or whether it's a, a you know, women-led account, what we find is that when uh, women do invest, um, being cautious about making their investment decisions is not always a bad thing. A lot of studies have shown that overconfidence can lead to excessive trading, and that can be detrimental to investment performance. So, you know, there's a balance there. If being cautious leads to being too conservative, then women might be leaving money on the table. 
And that's a problem when women often start in a deficit position because their income on average is 84 cents um, to every dollar that their male counterparts earn. So that makes the money that they do have more dear to them. Women often will express a lot of worry about losing that hard-earned money. So it follows that they'll be more careful with their money, and that can translate into investing more conservatively. And when you compound lower pay with a more conservative investment approach, and then the greater likelihood that women are going to take time away from work to care for loved ones, you know, whether that be children or parents or, you know, someone else they care about that they uh, want to step away from work for a year or several years even, that can all add up more financial challenges for women. We see that women, when they do invest, they usually have some really great traits that allow them to outperform men, not on an absolute basis, but on a risk-adjusted basis. So for every unit of risk they take, they do tend to have better or higher performance. The traits that we think contribute to that are, are three things. Um, Women tend to stick to their plans more often. They tend to trade more cautiously, so not as often. And they make decisions that are based on their financial plan. That time constraint is is a real issue for many women. So we say um, that women thinking about getting started in investing, we'd suggest that they first find out what their company offers for retirement savings. That's often, you know, a, a very quick thing to do to just get started investing, at least for a retirement goal. And then to meet other financial goals, it might be that finding a a financial professional that they're comfortable with could be a great way to explore the options. That might mean interviewing several different advisors and planners. If they're do-it-yourselfers, they can find a lot of great financial advice online from the CFA Institute, from reputable financial firms. And I say, use those reputable sources because there's a lot of information out there and not all of it's good. So just making sure that it is coming from a a trustworthy source. There are even very low minimum portfolio allocation options that can guide investors to a diversified asset allocation. It's designed to meet their financial goals. And really key for time-strapped women is that these services often require very limited initial upfront time. Most of the time is spent making investment decisions or, or I'm not making investment decisions, but it's really more about determining the financial goals and then figuring out risk tolerance. You know, both of these ways of getting help, whether it's personal help from a financial advisor or digital investment tools, they're great ways to get started. And then, you know, as an investor progresses through their career, they might find that their finances are getting more complicated. So, you know, a hybrid solution at that point might be the right choice. And a a hybrid might be where you're, you know, doing some of it yourself online and you're also using the assistance of an investment professional. To us, really, the bottom line is that women should get started investing as soon as possible and not to worry too much about the individual investment selections. They don't need to necessarily worry about, you know, whether to buy stock A or stock B. What really matters 
is diversification and getting an early start so they can take advantage of the time value of money. That is superb advice. We want to thank you for your time and we appreciate your sharing your thoughts and insights with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. To all our NC15 listeners, we appreciate your support. We look forward to bringing you the best leaders. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate us on your favorite service provider. We love hearing your thoughts and it will help others find us. Also a reminder, past performance is no guarantee of future results. This material may contain an assessment of the market and economic environment at a specific point in time and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. Forward-looking statements are subject to certain risks and uncertainties. Actual results, performance, or achievements may differ materially from those expressed or implied. This is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any individual. This material should not be considered a recommendation to buy or sell securities or a guarantee of future results. The opinion expressed is based on information from sources believed to be correct, but no guarantee can be made to their accuracy. The information contained in this report is not written or intended as financial, tax, or legal advice. You are encouraged to seek financial, tax, and legal advice from your professional advisors.